Hello and welcome to episode 238 of Greater Than Code. I'm your host, Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with my friend, Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey. And we're both here today with our guest, May Beal. May spent 20 years in and out of nonprofit land with jaunts into biochemistry and women's studies degreeing, full-time pool playing, high school chemistry and physics teaching, higher ed senior administrating, and more. She went to code school in 2014 at 37 years old to gain the technical skills needed to build the tools she wished she'd had in all the years prior. So glad to have you, May. Thanks, Casey. Thanks, Jamie. Same for me. So you may be ready for the first question that we're going to ask you, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Yeah, thank you. I think that my superpower is being able to relate to other people and find ways to support them. How did I get good at that? Well, I've dealt with a lot of pretty complicated people in my life that like you have to do extra thinking to figure out. So I think I got my my start with that. And I've done lots of different things in life and met lots of different people and felt lots of different feelings and thought lots of different thoughts. So yeah, I think that's mostly it. Living. I was going to say that I know from knowing you that you've done lots of things, but even our listeners who don't know you probably already know that just after listening to your bio. So, <laughs> Yep. And there's plenty more that didn't make it in there. That's something that is fun and kind of a joke is no matter how long people know me, there's always still something that they didn't know. And so that's fun for me. I like to surprise other people. And I love being surprised by people. So it's like a little game I have with all my my fun facts. I love that. I've got a question. What's on your mind lately? What is on my mind lately? So many things. I don't even know where to start. One is where and how can I contribute to the future of humanity and American culture in particular and and the circles that I'm in drawing it down even more. So I think about that a lot. I think about my house a lot. I just bought a house and I'm going to do each room in like with a color theme. So it'll end up being you walk through the rainbow. Pretty excited for that. Lots of things there. And I think a lot about how to empower others and and be a more and more effective communicator. I think about that a lot. Probably those are the top ones. And maybe Dominion. I play that every day. So I think about that a little bit. (laughs) Love that game. Me too. This is great. All three are really interesting. I kind of want to start on your first one. Mm Mm-hmm. What opportunities do you see lately or what have you done recently or what do you hope to do to help the world, help American culture, help make an impact? What are you working on? From where I sit, it seems like the most important things that any of us can attune to even a portion of is like the environment and whatever's going on with our ability as humans to respond to climate change. 
and water, like clean, accessible water for people and hate and divisiveness. Like those three things I think are our biggest challenges. So I try to do things that end up in those spheres, if not in things that ideally have some mix of those rather than having them be silos. So one thing that um, one of my jobs <laughs> is working with Title Track Michigan, and they are a relatively new nonprofit that brings creative practice to complex problems and is specifically focused on water protection, racial equity, and youth empowerment. And once all the uprisings started in 2020, we created an Understanding Racial Justice course for white people in Northern Michigan. And so I've been helping to facilitate those courses and, yeah, taking as many opportunities to rethink my orientation to all those topics as well. That's so cool. You found a group that does all of those things in one. Amazing, right? Wow. Title Track Michigan, huh? Yeah. I found them because my life radically changed a few years ago. A lot of things changed at once, like not just a lot, all of the things. And so I went on this walkabout just trying to find ways to be of service in the world um, without expectation and watch like who I met and where I ended up. And I ended up in Michigan and getting introduced to these people who then were creating a new nonprofit title track. And another thing I do is I have a consultancy that I have a flagship enterprise product for nonprofit and small business administration. That is a little bit of a Trojan horse for like change management and organizational development and like sustainable longevity planning for organizations. So, so the fact that I ended up there with them at that time and way more cool, like synchronicities happened. And so that's how I met them. So it just, yeah, feels right and great to have, have landed in that space and then to have 2020 be what it became. We were already formed and positioned to try to be of help. This is kind of an abstract question, but Love what it. what does it feel like to feel like you're doing the right thing in that way? Like the mm -hmm. right thing, the right place to be. I got this sense from you telling the story that like things just kind of came together in the right way at the right time. And like, that's a beautiful thing when that happens. And you said like, it feels right. Like, what does that feel like? Mm, thanks, Jamie. Well, my first thought is another thing that Title Track does in that Understanding Racial Justice course and, and a, a lot of circles I've ended up in have a focus on somatics and so like body-centered awareness and engagement. So I used to always think my answer was going to be emotional when people ask me, how do I feel? And now I hear and think of my body first. So that's cool. So I'll answer a couple ways if that's okay. When, for me, synchronicities happen and I feel most alive or, yeah, of use, which is important to me, like, my heart literally feels 
bigger and almost breathing. Like I can feel air. I don't know how to explain that. And I'm definitely will be smiling more. And my back is straighter. And uh, I usually have a lot more to say. All of a sudden, I'll have a lot to say. Other times, I have nothing to say. And for like, how I might have answered that question previously would be closer to the having a lot of things to say, like I'm a lot more creative and making connections and getting excited and wanting to create new things together with other people. How about you two? Just hearing you describe that, I thought back on times I felt really proud and engaged, and I noticed my posture improved too. That's so interesting. I've had a nerve injury for two years. My hands go tingly sometimes, so I'm working on my back. I'm like noticing posture all the time. Interesting how my mood like that could affect the posture. I believe it too. I'm not sure that I would have called out posture specifically in that way, but now that I'm thinking about it, I think what I would say is like, I feel lighter. Yeah. And so like to feel kind of less bogged down, like I can see in what way that's related to posture. (laughs) Totally. Yep. 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 We all have a lot to say on this. I love it. (laughs) This reminds me of the flow state. So when you, when your skills, match a need and it's challenging the appropriate amount you're in a great concentration state but if your skills aren't enough or if like the need isn't important enough either one feels way less good not good totally i lived at a yoga retreat center for a little while in uh, massachusetts called kripalu it's like the largest uh yoga retreat center in north america i had never done yoga and i was like oh cool i'll just go um live there <laughs> and see anyway i was there for three months and they have like a a part of their organization dedicated to kind of like optimal human performance. And they have a partnership with Tanglewood and some other places around there to see if yoga and meditation can like induce more flow state more of the time for top performing musicians and just to be able to, you know, have more quote unquote scientific evidence about how physiologically, we can do things to get ourselves closer to those states more often. Pretty cool work. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was just doing some research on the effects of different types of yoga and meditation on anxiety. I was trying Mm. to read some of the primary sources. I like to go to PubMed first. That's my go-to. Some people do Google Scholar. It's interesting. The framing sounded in a couple papers like well, it's not as good as CBT. And my takeaway was, well, it helps an amount, huh? Great, good. <laughs> so people who can't get access to CBT should consider that. And that's mm-hmm. true anyway. Like Science has shown this thing we knew was helpful anyway is helpful in an empirical sense, and that's great. Totally. Casey, for anybody who might not know what CBT is, would you be willing to? Thank you. I know- CBT here is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most common and effective forms of talk therapy you would do with a therapist. It focuses on uh, what some like maladaptive, unhelpful thought patterns are and helps you change them. And that's coming from a psych major, right, Casey? That's right. (laughs) I talk all about that in my book, Debugging Your Brain. 
It's funny, mate. You're like flipping the script here. Usually we do this to our guests. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. There's another project, May, that I know that you've worked on that I'm a little bit surprised that you haven't brought up yet, but I'm going to bring it up, um, which is your mutual aid program. And I think that when you are talking about like doing something to make an impact on the world, like that was the first thing I thought of since I know you're involved with that. And I would love to hear you talk about it. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for bringing that up. And I I did want to talk about that. And I was looking forward to hearing what you have to say about that topic as well. So when the pandemic started, you may have seen these or become involved, but there was a whole bunch of spreadsheets starting like Google Sheets of people who had some needs and people who wanted to offer some things. So, you know, a Google spreadsheet's a really easy first pass for people with low tech skills and no budget to just come together. But I started being invited to all these different spreadsheets from around the country that include people's name, address, phone number, cash app name, their exact vulnerabilities and identities and current struggles, like in a spreadsheet that's downloadable. And it really freaked me out. And I started coding that day about like, how can we start to do something to make these people not have to have their identity so exposed. And through like WeCamp networks and Ruby for Good networks and different slacks I'm in of varying programmers, I I started saying, does anybody else want to get involved? And several people did. And Yeah, so we have built a platform to support mutual aid groups. And what we did immediately was find some groups (laughs) to figure out what their needs were instead of just what we might imagine. And they were doing a lot of, we call it like dispatch moderated setups where people fill out a form and then volunteers read the forms and then match people and do all the like communication manually, but not having peer-to-peer things go on. So the system was originally designed to support that moderator, uh, dispatch moderated setup. And once people started to go back to work in the fall and like there weren't as many people able to devote as much time to volunteer and as varying groups, especially ones that hadn't been around as long, realized they would probably need a lot more training in like social work-esque things just to be more effective and and figure out how to route people correctly within their community to services that might be able to help them a little more. And so since the fall, we've shifted to coding a peer-to-peer solution, and we have several different mutual aid groups around the country, and right now most closely working with groups in Michigan and New York State, just because that's where our networks are. And, um, yeah, getting to launch some peer-to-peer stuff. But mutual aid itself has kind of become a buzzword. And, like, what is that anyway? <laughs> so that topic I I love talking about. There's, like, a, a mutual aid saying that's solidarity, not charity. Like, the whole thing is we're all in it together. And we're not going to rely on, like, different structures or institutions that were set up most often in ways that institutionalize various forms of oppression. So yeah, just having like empowering people to connect with each other and have stronger networks and build more resiliency is like 
what's up with it, but mutual aid has been around for like over a hundred years, at least as a term and a, a thing, but it generally almost always springs from communities that have been disenfranchised. So when the pandemic started and a lot of new groups formed, not everybody had already checked what's already happening. And a lot of different people, especially in communities of color, were sort of surprised by, like, they didn't hear that term. That's just what they do. So there's there's been a big, yeah, like, <laughs> along with everything else, learning of how those structures already were in place and how we can continue to grow them and support each other as we navigate this world we're in. Jamie, I was going to ask you about your involvement with mutual aid too, and if you had anything to add to that definition. I was going to say that I really liked what you said about finding new ways around things that have been institutionalized. Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the things that's so beautiful about mutual aid is the way that people can help each other realize what kind of help is available and what kind of help they even might need. Um, like a story that I really like to tell that I think about a lot is I have a friend who's involved in mutual aid in, in Buffalo where I'm from and he does like repair work and kind of just is very handy in that way. And so he does a lot of like repair, mutual aid repair for people and he told me that the way that this like started for him is that there was a request in our mutual aid Facebook group where someone was saying like, I really need like $200 or something like this because my window is broken and I need to buy a space heater because it's like been getting really cold. And so I need this money to buy a heater and all of this stuff. And my friend came in and was like, okay, but what if? I just fixed your window <laughs> and it had like not occurred to this person that they, that she could ask for that. Um, oh, like she was coming up with all of these solutions around it. And so this idea of like coming together as a community and saying like, yeah, I can help you, but like, can we help a little bit closer to the source than what you even just asked for? I think is like really powerful. <laughs> yes. I love that, Jamie. Yeah. It's the closer we can, be in community with each other, the easier those asks are. And something that you said about, you know, figuring out your own needs, there is a thing, and it's related a little bit to some of the other topics we've talked about where there's like the white savior thing, right? Like people want to like do something for people who they think are less, uh, they have less than them. And there's a power dynamic there. And mutual aid, like mutual, that's the main part. And so you really aren't doing mutual aid if you're not accepting help. And like all of us have things that we could be supported with and things to offer. And I love also the having that not like there's a lot of mutual aid that is about just giving money and or like reparation stuff. But I love when money isn't part of the equation and quantification of value isn't part of the equation. It's just like, I have something to give and I could use something and this is how we're going to stay in community and in network and lower those barriers to 
have offers and asks be even easier in the future, you know? For sure. And I think it's like about meeting people with where they are too, because like, I agree about like some programs are focused on money and like some people have money and can like put that into the community and that's great. Um, But maybe they don't have time to kind of show up and do these things. And other people might think like, well, how can I help? Because I don't have money, but they have time or they have skills And I think that like everyone bringing in and saying like, this is what I have to offer with what's going on in my life right now. And maybe it's money or maybe it's time or maybe it's something else that I didn't even think of that they're going to (laughs) offer. Totally. When you were saying that, I just got like a, a chill thinking if really every single person just asked that question, you just said like, how can I help if we all did one thing this is how to affect broad change you know how can people find the mutual aid groups near them if they just search mutual aid that probably gets a bunch but they don't all say it right yeah it's a really great point there have been some different efforts to link together mutual aid networks and there's like a map but not every network's on it because not every network even knows about it so like because mutual aid is so grassroots it's not Like a number of them have form 501c3s just to not be doing like illegal financial transaction stuff that is problematic, like by um, having all this money go through their personal Venmo or something. But that is what a lot of people have done. So, yeah, mostly there's the Google option and the term mutual aid is getting used more and more. But there are some other phrases like. I'm forgetting it right now. What's the name when they hand out medical supplies? Harm reduction. There's a bunch of harm reduction efforts. There's also in in cities where there are a lot of homeless shelters. There's things around encampments and like becoming community with those folks to advocate. Another piece, major piece of mutual aid that I forgot to name is it inherently has a political engagement component in it. And so one of the reasons why it is this solidarity thing is you're seeing all the humans as like inherently equally valuable and that you're identifying the structural things that led to people having a different experience or a different privilege or a different outcome to what's going down for them. So then by identifying those together, you try to change the system to not create the problem. Whereas a a lot of, to go back to that phrase, charity, a lot of charities, which are awesome, I'm not trying to knock those, but a lot of them have more of a, it's your fault or shortcoming or need that has put you where you are. Mutual aid is like, the way in which this is all rigged and on purpose or not on purpose or just like the impact of the structures is how you ended up where you are. So let's rejigger. A phrase that comes up a lot in the protest community specifically is we keep us safe. And we say that at protests about like, Uh, security and medics and things like and wearing masks I've seen people start to use in that phrase but like I think that 
that's a phrase that really speaks to like what mutual aid is about too. It's about like we are doing something together for ourselves as a community and we're not looking for, you know, something from the outside that comes in like a hierarchical structure. We're just making this decision as a group of people to take care of ourselves and our neighbors. And I think that's what I really love about it. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, back to what you were saying, Casey, the how can people find those things? There's also just, uh, hey, I've got some extra seeds or put a cabinet in your yard with some food in it and say free food. Like you you don't have to associate with a quote unquote mutual aid group to do mutual aid. It's like that's just a blanket term, basically, that offers a little bit of a cue about what those people might be up to. But it's really like a, in whatever way you are sharing and developing relationships with your fellow community members this is mutual aid i thought of another example of that yay we have this in buffalo but i think it's a thing that we're seeing other places too separate from our mutual aid network we have a face a facebook buy nothing group yeah and people will post like oh i have this i'm gonna get rid of it you know someone come pick it up oh i was gonna donate these spoons from my kitchen someone can have them Um, when you said seeds like that's the kind of thing you'll see on buy nothing and I think that's been kind of like a revolutionary thing even kind of separately from it because I do think that like money plays a part in a lot of mutual aid stuff because like folks need money for things Um, but in buy nothing it's like pointedly without money and I think that that's like a very fun and cool dynamic too totally yes yes I have a couple of things I would love to say to that. One is that the bringing up Facebook has started to like support mutual aid, but also I don't know if y'all have seen the social dilemma and just become like aware of all of this tracking that's going down. There's something that is another motivator for us on the mutual aid repo is this is open source code that anybody who wants to use it can stand up their own instance. And if you partner with us, like connect with us, we will help you if you need us to, but it's intentionally not like a multi-tenant app so that people have small data sets that they own. And, and there isn't like this aggregate thing going on about like local data, like let's, it's it's basically like a small tech for the win, you know, which is also pretty mutual 80. And our group, like uh, the programmers who are most involved, meet a couple times a week and knows about what's going on in each other's lives. Like we are mutual aid for each other, too. So like the energy of what how who we are and what we're doing is getting put into the thing that we're building that hopefully has that same effect so there's this nice spiral thing going on in there that I'm I'm proud of I think there's a lot about what we referenced earlier institutionalization of oppression that has to be like there are ways to create (laughs) other options and they take cultivation of and building new structures so stuff like this is an example of that and an experiment in it and another one that it reminded me of is when I was younger I used to go to rainbow gatherings I don't know if y'all know about these they're like 
it's a super hippie thing. And there's regional gatherings, but there's a national gathering at a national forest every year. And all these people just show up and then they build like earthen stoves. And there's a bunch of people who do not participate in main society. They just go to these different gatherings and roam traveling around as uh, there's plenty more to talk about, about rainbow tribe and all, and even the usage of that word tribe and what goes down. And I'm not going to try to touch into that, but something I love about it is there's a whole like exchange row where people just sit out with things and, and there's no money. You're not allowed to use money. And the first, I think I was 18 when I went to my, my first one and I was just like, what? This is amazing. Like just to imagine my life not through a currency or, or that kind of like evaluated exchange is so inspiring to me. It still is. And so some of what you said, Jamie, reminded me of that. I relate a lot to that too. Burning Man events are also like no money allowed. Ah. And when I first, when I first like entered that space, that was like one of the things that really spoke to me about it too. And in fact, it's also no barter allowed in Burning Man. It's like a purely gifting economy and culture where like, you know, if you gift someone something, a lot of times they become inspired to gift you something back right there. And there's like an exchange that happens, but like culturally the point of it is that there's not supposed to be any expectation of like exchange when you gift something to somebody. Do you know about that restaurant in San Francisco that is free, but you pay for the person behind you if you want? I don't know about one in San Francisco specifically, but we have something, we have a program like that similar in Buffalo. Oh, it's called, Big blue t- I'm going to look it up so I don't get it wrong. How about you, Casey? I'm, get- I'm getting excited, so I keep saying things. Oh, I'm reflecting on the word mutual aid a lot through all this. I like this idea that mutual aid as is an action, and that mutual aid groups do mutual aid, but individuals can too. That's a yeah. pretty powerful theme. It makes the term more approachable, especially since it's like a jargon word lately. Mm-hmm. It's just like grassrootsy helping each other out, however that looks. Totally. I'm thinking a lot about what communities I'm a part of, too, that naturally have that phenomenon. So, like, I'm queer. I'm in a lot of queer groups. I'm in interest groups, like musician groups, and they help each other do stuff. They, like, carpool to the practice or anything like that. that that's this. There's also formal ones, like DC Ward 6 has mutual aid groups that are named that. That's its own thing. And then even my Facebook my Facebook friends, I just post, like, I have a crockpot, who wants it? Totally. But before today, I might not have used the word mutual aid to describe any of that, because I'm not part of a formal approved mutual aid group, which is not the point of that term. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, just people helping people. When I was thinking about getting into tech, I, as a a pretty outspoken woman um, who will address injustice directly if I see it, when I see it in myself and others. I wasn't sure if that was going to be a place for me. I had I had had some not awesome experiences with tech people before I was in tech, and so 
I reached out to a bunch of people who were already in the biz and they spent hours talking to me about their experiences and and answering all of my questions and offering to help me. And as I took the leap and went to code school and participated in meetups and like just everywhere is mutual aid in programming. Everybody is helping each other. And I have a question. I'm wondering about this. This podcast is mutual aid in my opinion. (laughs) Like, you know, it's been really inspiring for me to be a programmer because I feel a a part of a, a worldwide network of people who try to, especially with mixing in the open source piece, like try to build things and offer what they can. It's awesome. I have a challenge for people listening to this podcast. This week, I'd like you to help someone and accept help from someone, both in this family. I'm surprised, um, not surprised, accepting help might be the harder half for a lot of people. Yes, I think that's true. (laughs) One way I've said it before is that that is your gift to the giver. Like the giver doesn't get to be a giver unless you accept the gift from them. And that people can, uh, including myself at times, tend to overgive and that is its own challenge, you know? So yeah, if you need to stay in the giving frame, you can be like, all right, well, I'm providing this opportunity to the other person. (laughs) Sometimes I've playfully pushed on that, that idea to people I'm trying to help them. And they say, oh, no, 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 I can't accept your help because I would be indebted. And I'm like, you would deprive me of this good feeling I would get from helping you? <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow, what that a, way a little jerk. bit. I'm not like, <laughs> right. Um, just thinking that way a little bit, flipping it helps some people accept the help then. Yep. I think that people have so much harder of a time of extending like love and empathy and forgiveness and all of these kind of nice things that we might really value extending to other people, but not to ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, Mm -hmm. that's for real, Jamie. And still on this theme, the seeing each other as equals as in community, there's my mom used to say this great phrase, there, but for the grace of God, go I. She was raised Catholic, so it's got that in there. But I love that of this could definitely be me. And there's a, a cool Buddhist practice that I learned from Pema Chodron about you extend like release of suffering to others And then you widen the circle to include yourself in it, but you don't start there. So similar to how you're saying, Jamie, that that is a challenge for a lot of people. It's just built into that practice where, yeah, the when you can't give yourself a break, (laughs) imagining others in that situation and then trying to include yourself as an angle on it. I like that. I think also kind of related to what, to Casey's example of his joke, is like thinking about how what you do affects other people. I think sometimes we're better at that. And 
you know, if you're treating yourself bad, especially if you're in one of these like tight mutual communities, like if you're treating yourself bad, that's affecting the people around you too. Like they don't want to see you being treated bad and they don't want to see you being miserable and they want the best for you. And when like you're preventing yourself from having the best, like that's affecting the whole community too. Yo. I hadn't really thought about it like that until right now. So thank you, Casey. With your joke. Yeah. Like the group, your, your people, your team, they need you to be your best. So if you want to help your team, sometimes the best way is to help yourself. It's and not selfish. Your... It's, it's the opposite yeah. of selfish. Exactly. Another thing I have heard a bunch of the different activist groups, some phrasing that people have started to use is collective liberation. And like, no one's free till we're all free. And like, if yeah, we are suffering. The other people are suffering and vice versa. And so figuring out how to not be so cut off from ourselves or others or that suffering and like seeing them as entwined, I think is one of the like ways to unlock the lack of empathy that a lot of people experience. There's a really cool visualization I like that that reminds me of. It's called the parable of the polygons. And you can drag around like triangles and squares. And you can see how segregation ends up happening. If you have certain criteria set up in the heuristics of how they move. Or if, if some people want to be around diverse people, it ends up not happening. Or it ends up like recovering and getting more integrated and mixed. And it's so powerful because you can manipulate the diagrams. There's a whole series of diagrams. Look it up. It's the parable of polygons. Cool. That is awesome. So like, I want to be around people who aren't like me. And that helps. Like, that helps. It helps with this phenomenon. And the more people do that, the better. Yeah. And having grown up in a small city that's pretty homogenous on multiple levels, when I went to college and was, like, learned that people thought differently like my world was this very rigidly defined this is how things are (laughs) uh and my biker dad that's like still his way his lens and yeah when you start to experience people who are not like yourself you let that challenge your assumptions then you end up transformed by that. I was a double major in college, biochemistry and women's studies. And I remember being in an organic chemistry class and the professor said, well, if that's too hard for you, you can go take a sociology class. And I raised my hand and was like, my sociology classes challenge me on every single thing I think about the world. Your class requires me to provide rote memorization, which I'm awesome at, luckily, and that's how I ended up (laughs) in your class. But, like, that is not harder. That's that story. The last episode that I recorded was with Andrea Goulet. One of the the things that kept coming up was the old-timey 
like programming interview questions were all about math, which isn't yes. necessarily what programming is about. And that, that reminds me here, like rote memorization in that class versus complex systems thinking in sociology. Totally. For these two choices, I might choose a sociology person to do architecture work in my software than the rote memorization person. Definitely. Every time. Yep. And that's a different lens that I have coming into the industry from having been an administrator for so many years is like our perception as programmers about what's going to be helpful is uh, very different than someone whose day job is to do repetitive work. Like very, very, very simple apps. Like when I was in code school, I really wanted us to figure out how to make even our homework assignments be available for nonprofits. And that's kind of how my whole system and business ended up getting spun out. Oh, it was before that. I, my job before that, when I interviewed, I said, well, how long do you need someone here for? And he said, you know, how long would you need me to commit? And he said a year. And I said, all right, well, I'm not sure I'm the best candidate for you because I'm going to go to grad school and get a degree and be a consultant to businesses and nonprofits. And then I was at that job for eight and a half years before I went to code school. <laughs> but yeah, the thing about what could be of use just requires so much humility from programmers to defer to the actual employees and the workers about their experience and what could help them. Because so often we think that we're the ones with the awesome idea and we can just like change their lives and disrupt the thing. And a lot of the best ideas come from the people themselves. I went to a project management training in like Puerto Rico and it was a very rarefied environment of people who could pay for people to get PMP training or whatever. And the people that were in my cohort were factory project planners, and not a single one of them knew anyone who worked in the factory. Like they didn't get to know them as part of that project, and they didn't have anyone in their sphere. And my parents were paper mill workers. So like when I'm sitting there and listening to these people talk about, you know, the worker and their their lack of uh, wherewithal, I guess would be a gracious way to say it right now. Like, I was just appalled. So I try to take that into any time we are building software in a way that honors all people. Yeah, my favorite leaders are the ones that listen to their employees and the users. And I am happy with my roles in leadership positions. But the thing that makes me happy with myself is listening. And if I ever lose that, I don't trust myself to be a good leader or manager. Totally. I could. I know. It's like easy when you get promoted to stop listening as much. It's the incentive structure of the system. I wouldn't blame myself if I lost it. But knowing I value it and don't want to lose it helps me hold on to my <laughs> propensity to listen. Yes, Casey. Totally that. Sometimes people have asked me, uh, what makes you think you'd be good at leading this? And that is literally my answer. It's like, well, I won't forget to listen. <laughs> yeah. I think that it's weird the way that people create this hierarchy of like good ideas and better ideas and like which idea is better. 
and like put that kind of value judgment on it when really when you're dealing with like software and trying to create something that like works for the people that are using it it's not about like whether your idea is good or bad it's about whether it's like the right one for that group of people and so my background I worked in uh my first like tech industry job was in agriculture and so all of our customers were farmers and people who worked at farms and like to admit I don't know what it's like to work on a farm in that way is like not a value judgment about whether you're like smart or good at programming which people act like it is it's just like a true fact about whether or not you've ever had that experience (laughs) sometimes I run workshops uh, where we think about all the pros and cons to different ideas. And when we need it, we pull out a matrix. We get a spreadsheet that has columns and rows. And the, the rows are like the ideas. And a lot of decisions are made with one column, naturally. Like, what's the best? And you just say, like, one to ten. This one's the best. But when we break it out, we have lots of columns, lots of variables. Like, oh, this one's easier to build. This one's higher impact. Uh, and when we break it out even further, we can weight those columns and then do matrix math. And people like that, actually. Even people who are kind of math-averse, they can fill in the numbers in each of the cells, and then they trust the spreadsheet to do the thing. And it gets us on the same page. It depends on the context, which columns matter, which factors are important. And that can completely change the situation, even if you all agree on, like, this one's harder than that one. The mm-hmm. outcome could be completely different. Context. The columns are the context in my matrix model. We're reading at work. 99 bottles of object-oriented programming, which May knows because we work together, which we haven't said yet on the show. Um, but we're doing like a book club and like what your description of the matrix columns and like what is relevant reminded me of kind of the thesis of, of that book because it's like there are trade-offs. It's not that one trade-off is necessarily more valuable than another trade-off. It's just like what makes sense for this context that you're using and building it in. And you have to think about it in that nuanced way if you want to come up with like a nuanced answer. I am so grateful to and inspired by Sandy Metz. Her ability to distill these concepts into like common sense terms is so genius and um moving welcoming accessible yeah so so grateful so really glad you brought that up jamie and one of the things that really stuck out from various talks of hers that i've been to is even if you aren't changing that code if that code does not need to change if it's bad code but it works that's great code, <laughs> like working code. And splitting some of the like bike shedding that we do on code quality with business impact is a teeter-totter that I, I really appreciate. I like the way it puts value on everyone and what they're working on because like my big takeaway from starting to read this book has been that like I tend to write fairly simple code because like that's what I find easy to do and I always felt like well other people write more complicated code than me because they know more about x y and z than me and like I don't know enough about it to write something that that's that's that elegant or that complex or etc 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 and like I had placed this value judgment on other people's code over mine and to read about code that's like 
dissecting the kind of value judgments we put on it and determining like, Hey, just because like, maybe it's not always the best thing to like over-engineer something. Maybe you, maybe it doesn't have to be because you don't feel smart enough to over-engineer it. Maybe it can just be because like, that's not the right choice. (laughs) And I thought that was really valuable to think about. Love that, Jamie. Boost people's confidence. I hope. Because I think a lot of people need their confidence boosted. Yo, I had no idea what I was getting into as far as, like, the mental health challenge of being a programmer. Like, to maintain one's self-respect, especially as an adult who was successful in her career prior to then be, like, there is a whole thing about the adult learner. But to... Have your entire day be dealing with things that are either broken or don't exist yet. That's your whole day. So nothing works ever, basically. And the moment it does, you move on to the things that aren't or don't exist. And so it's so critical to try to remember and or learn how to celebrate those small wins that then somehow feel like insulting that you're celebrating because it's just some simple thing. (laughs) And then it's like, why are we making a big fanfare? But those micro joys, like maybe, uh, I've never heard that phrase, but as opposed to microaggression or something like micro joys, if we could give each other those, it could go a long way because yeah, it is the validation is a very different experience than I have seen or heard about or experienced in any other industry. It's a real challenge. Not only is everything broken or doesn't exist, but like once it's working, you never hear about it again until it's broken again. Yeah. (laughs) That's so true. And it's such an (laughs) anti-pattern. At USCIS, we would have every developer who was interested see an interview. We're working on an interview app. Like, watch the user use the app uh, every month, at least, if not more. And they loved those. They saw the context. They saw the thing they just built be used. That's positive feedback that everyone deserves, in my opinion. It's just like a cultural idea that engineers don't get to see users, but they should. They do in some companies, and yours can too. Yes, Casey. We are working on that at TrueLink Financial as well, figuring out how to work that more in so that yeah we all feel part of the same team more and we're not like the IT crowd and in the basement and all we have to say is hello have you tried turning it on and off again Casey I love that because even as you were telling that story I was like yeah it's useful to see how people use it because that'll help you make better decisions and blah 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 which I feel strongly about and then what you actually said at the end was and you get satisfaction out of being able to see people using your thing. And I hadn't even thought of that like yeah. dynamic of it. It's both happier and more effective. That's the thing I say a lot. <laughs> These user interviews make you happier doing your job and make you more effective at doing them both. How could you not? Yeah. What's not to like? <laughs> it's true, though, about like knowing that people use your app. I started in consulting And like a lot of the things I worked on felt like a little soul crushing and not because I thought that they were like bad or unethical in any way, but just like, who is this for? Like, who cares about this? And one of my like most joyful experiences was one of the other 
products that wasn't quite like that that I worked on when I was in consulting was an app called Score Builders, and it was for like physical therapy students have like a specific standardized test they have to take, and so it's like study prep for this specific test. Um, there's like two or three, and we had like different programs for them. And then I, a few years after that, was in physical therapy myself because I have like back problems. And they have like interns from college helping at the physical therapy office that I went to. And they were talking about studying for their test or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's funny. I haven't thought about that in a while. Like, do you use score builders to study? And they were like, oh, yeah, like we all use it. Like, that's what you use if you're in this program. And I was like, oh, I built that. And they were like, what? They're like calling all of the other people from like the next room to be like, guess what? And I'm like, this is literally the best thing that's ever happened. Yeah, that's such a good story in the end. But it's such a bad story. You never got to meet anyone like that earlier? Really? Yeah. I mean, that's common. That's everywhere. But that's a shame. Particularly since it was consulting and not like I didn't work for score builders. Oh, sure. It's even more hard. Yep. I'm so glad you got that. Thank you. It happened like five years ago and I still think about it all the time. Well, we've been having a great discussion, but we've pretty much reached the point in the show where it's time to do reflections. And that's when everyone will say something that really stood out to them about our conversation, maybe a call to action, something that they want to think more about. So, Casey, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, I said this earlier, but this is my big takeaway is the word mutual aid can be more approachable if you think about it like people helping people and not a formal organization, especially since it is like by definition grassrootsy. Like there is no formal form like, like it's a stamp of approval on a mutual aid group that formalizes it. That's pretty powerful. Uh, I'll be thinking about what communities I'm part of that do that and through that lens this week. And I challenge listeners to help and be helped sometime this week, both. I think one thing that I'm going to really try and keep in mind is what we were talking about valuing yourself and the way that that helps the community. And I really liked May's story about like including yourself after other people and like using that way to frame it in your mind, because I think that that will make it easier and thinking about like, this is something I struggle with all the time. I think a lot of us do. And so I think that, I really want to take that one into my life. Like next time I, I realize I'm kind of treating myself unfairly. I want to think like, well, how is this affecting the other people around me who probably don't want to see me do that? Thanks, Jamie. Yeah. I have so many answers of reflections. The one I know I'm going to use immediately is this most recent one of engaging with users using your, the things you're building is a reward and way to be able to get micro joy. And I'm definitely going to use that word now, more micro joys. But yeah, I agree with both of what you said too. Well, May, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. This was really great. I think people will really appreciate it. Yay, I loved it. Thank you both so much. What a treat. I feel like we could keep talking for hours. I know. <laughs> this has been That's great. how I feel after a lot of our episodes. Yeah. <laughs> it's always good, I guess, but... <laughs> <laughs>